Okay, sounds good. Mark and Ishan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Longtime listener. Really excited to be here. Great to have you too. You are also hosts of your own podcast with some sweet intro sounds that you give when people are on. So I might have to snip a little bit of that to get in the show. But why don't you let our listeners know who you are, what your show is, and then also a little bit about your company, Layer Zero. I'm Ishan Anand, CTO of Layer Zero. And I'm Mark Bercato, VP of Engineering at Layer Zero. And the show you're referring to is our humble little podcast called JavaScript Jam, covering whatever's interesting in JavaScript and front-end web development, or full-stack web development as well. I don't know how they add that sound in. That's something the marketing team does, so we'll have to ping them more on it. And Layer Zero, the simplest way to think about this is we're a Jamstack platform. It's part of a category where internally we've been calling it App Ops, Application Orchestration. But I think most folks kind of casually know it as something similar to like Netlify or or Cell. Where we tend to focus and what differentiates them from us is we tend to focus on dynamic websites. If you went to, say, the Headless Commerce Summit last year, most folks who are using, you know, shall we say classic static Jamstack, so it's static sites and build times, were doing it on sites that had 10,000 pages or less, often a thousand pages or less. Where we tend to focus is the high end of the market. We call them high stakes websites, where they start at 10,000 pages, hundreds of thousands, millions of pages. So when you've got that level of complexity, how do you bring the Jamstack benefits if you can't go static? That's really where we spend a lot of focus. So you'll see a lot of stuff in our platform about observability and serverless functions. We tend to lean on that stuff a little more heavily than the other guys. And I'd be curious, you guys actually rebranded, I think, recently. So I'm curious, like, how long the company's been around, like, in its current form and its, like, previous form? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of like the best analogy is, you know how the Meteor team was working on Meteor and then they they started doing GraphQL and Apollo and rebranded and said, oh, this is the thing that has interesting traction. Let's try this. Layer Zero is kind of spun out of a previous company called uh, MoveWeb. MoveWeb was really in the business of helping customers go mobile. Again, same segment of the market, high-end e-commerce websites, folks like even Walmart, Macy's, or historical customers of MoveWeb. If you're curious, we can get into it. I really feel like MoveWeb was actually pre-Jamstack before Jamstack. It had a lot of the benefits of Jamstack, but from kind of an alternate dimension that didn't include static techniques. And then Layer Zero has really been the last two years and has had kind of our Jamstack platform in the flesh, and it's got a lot of interest and traction. So we we kind of rebranded around that after we saw it take off. There's also such an advantage to having a company whose name is the product. It's an order of magnitude worse when you're a company that has multiple products. Everybody just refers to you as the company name and branding gets all confused. When you've got one main thing going on, it's so much better to just be called that one main thing. Yeah. I played around a little bit with Layer Zero, just tried out one of the the starters and deployed it. It has a really cool CLI for doing like builds and deploys. There's such a large group of different companies that do something like this. And I would guess that the name Layer Zero is because we talk about like layers of clouds, like you have Layer 1 clouds, people talk about you have like Layer 2 things that are built on top of the Layer 1. So is the idea being that you wouldn't need like an AWS or anything like that because you guys are like the base layer of what you would use? 
That's pretty much it. It's the idea that it's the foundation of what you're going to build your app on. You can get started spending your time on your product instead of spending your time on your tools. Think about the last decade and a half. Cloud has been a huge driver of innovation. Like everything is underpinned by the cloud, whether it's mobile where you need synchronization between devices, AI and big data needs a cloud to store and process stuff. We've got a lot of tools, but go log in to AWS and look at that console. There are, if you count them, over 250 different services. And then you got to piece all those services together. And we actually mapped this out. We said, like, let's suppose you are trying to deploy, say, a Next.js application, and you want to make it production quality. You want to make sure you've got all the itties, you scalability, high availability, reliability, observability. And so you're going to want things like logs and security and all these other things, and you piece it together. And you actually have to stitch it across roughly around 20 different services. And then, of course, AWS has different availability zones. So you're going to have to re-spin up all this stack across multiple regions just so that you get high availability. And so that's actually a lot of work to do to piece that all together. With Layer 0, you just go into your next app and you type npm install Layer 0, the command line CLI, and then Layer 0 deploy, and you're off and running. And you can focus on your product and not have to worry about piecing together your infrastructure. So no DevOps, but great performance. One thing that I've appreciated listening to some of your content and seeing you speak at other meetups is that you are someone who is very interested in the larger philosophy of the Jamstack and like, what is the Jamstack? Where has it been? Where is it going to go? And whether it's a term that's useful or not, this is a conversation that happened at Jamstack Philly, the summer of Jamstack. Brian Rinaldi, who's also been on the show, was was in that discussion. You guys host you know a Jamstack podcast, so you are firmly in the keep the jam stack term, I would guess, which is, you know, kind of where we are still. You have ideas of like the whole history of the jam stack and where it came from and why it sort of reemerged. So I'd be curious to get into that a little bit. Actually, I also spoke, there's a talk where I kind of gave my manifesto on this. Brian Rinaldi, who you mentioned, runs a meetup called uh, CFE.dev, Certified Fresh Events for Developers. There's a talk I gave there called The Evolution of the Jamstack. I was going to call it actually the Jamstack Identity Crisis because there's kind of this moment now that the Jamstack is facing. And why this debate really matters is Jamstack for the longest time meant static. It meant build times. At a certain point, that doesn't scale. It doesn't apply to the largest websites on the internet. It wouldn't even apply and work on, say, a physical grocery store is like 60,000 items, right? So if you can't support something that's got 60,000 pages and take it online, then what good is this for the broader web ecosystem? As Jamstack has kind of struggled with that kind of scaling to large sites, there's been this kind of question like, oh, is it still just purely static? You saw things like incremental static generation from the Next.js team. And then the folks at Netlify introduced distributed persistent rendering as a standard. It's kind of this, we've always been at war with East Asia moment. If you remember from 1984, they, they redefined what Jamstack is. In fact, Jamstack keeps getting redefined. Like originally, even how it was written was capital J-A-M. They got rid of the capitalization on the A and the M. And now Jamstack isn't about purely static anymore. It can be this mix of static and dynamic, which to me is the right way to go. But you still see people, and to his credit, Brian is, you know, and I've had this debate multiple times, that hold on to, well, okay, Jamstack is mostly static or it's static first. 
And I think that definition may persist, you know, maybe for a year or two, but I don't think it's going to be durable. If you look ahead to the future, you've got things like personalization and A-B testing that are going to require essentially some type of compute that's happening at the edge. And it's not clear why you can do that at the edge, but you couldn't do it at the server. These questions lead to this interesting quandary of like, what is Jamstack now and what is it going to be? My kind of simplistic reduction of it is to say that Jamstack is really only two things, serving data from the edge or from the CDN as much as possible and developer empowerment. And that's it. If you look at all the other benefits of Jamstack, security, scalability, all those things actually rest on those two principles. They're either leveraging the CDN in some form or they're empowering the developer with like serverless functions. That's it in a nutshell. I don't want to just keep talking forever. I could talk for literally hours on this. Yeah, we'll link to that talk and some other material here. And I think this is really great because for us, the full stack Jamstack was the same idea of expanding out beyond what people think the Jamstack is. And if you're full stack, that means you have a database. So as you're saying, it can't only be static. A database can't be static. That'd be absurd. So it's about having this dynamic content and dynamic abilities. That's what we need to do most of the things we want to do on the web these days. The CDN is also something that we always hook into, and that's really important, getting edge distributed. But for us, I hone in a little more on like the DX, like the developer part. What does that really mean? And for me, that usually means version control Git type deploys and having atomic commits and rollbacks and things like that. And that seems to be something that Layer Zero does support, and you're in this whole Git workflow, right? Absolutely. We believe in empowering the developers to experiment. Things like doing an A-B test, which is critical, especially in in e-commerce, where you want to know, is my bright idea actually going to have impact on the bottom line? An A-B test is just get branch, push, decide how much traffic goes to one branch versus the other. And you can ramp up traffic or ramp down traffic very quickly, roll forward, roll back. The broader Jamstack principle is about empowering the developer to have more direct control over how they release software and not have to worry about the infrastructure in order to do that. And, And to empower them to do so in as a low stress environment as possible by being able to roll forward and roll back quickly without having a whole deployment orchestration that you have to do manually. So like on layer zero, if you push something out and you realize something's messed up, you just click on the deployment you want to restore and then boom, it's right back up and you have a minimal loss of revenue or traffic or whatever your metric is. And that Git-based workflow, we take it so much for granted. It's really a hallmark of Jamstack platforms. When Matt coined the term, I think it was what, it's now like five years ago, that wasn't an accepted standard. But I think going forward, there's no way that's not going to be part of everybody's development flow. And I think that's broadly true for a lot of the Jamstack. It's going to be kind of like that term HTML5. It's interesting for a few years, but it's just kind of the way of doing things that everyone agrees on. And it just fades into the standard and it becomes kind of the accepted way development gets done. One of my big questions I'm dying to ask, I have a bit of experience in this, so it's going to be interesting. I'm building a e-commerce store for a business, right? I'm a freelancer. Someone's came to me saying they need an e-commerce website. I go, great. I know how to build this. I'm going to use Gatsby. I'm going to use Shopify. I'm going to hook them together. And then every product, I build the page, bish bash bosh, website complete. That's great. You test it, you build it with your five products on. On Netlify, it builds in like 30 seconds, for example. You're like, this is awesome. It's Everything's working great. And then they dump another 100 products on or 200 products on or 50 products with 20 images each. And the size and speed of this balloons 
to the point where then build times are no longer favorable, as you guys probably know. So what's the alternative path that you guys are working on? Because as you said, it's not about the smallest websites you guys are focusing on. It's about the bigger websites, the e-commerce of the Jamstack. How should the perfect flow be? in your eyes about what tools to build with, opinionated or not, what's the best way? For example, does it all come down to the, the tool that's building it, i.e. Netlify, Vercel, Layer Zero? Or is it you need to also take things into account when you're developing? One of the biggest questions I have is, should we chuck Gatsby out the window for Nexus ISSG? These are all questions that are really hard to know in the moment when you're deciding these factors because you don't know which framework is going to work better with a thousand pages of products, do you? Or do you? There's a lot to unpack there. The first is I want to just make sure that folks understand the motivation. This problem, and I tend to call it build friction, isn't just about number of pages. It's also frequency of updates. Number of pages is a huge thing. Number of products, like I just said, like a grocery store is kind of my common touchstone. Like a physical grocery store is 60,000 products. If you can't do that, if e-commerce was to have a vastly more selection than the physical store, and if your digital store is being held back at 10,000 pages, there's an issue. The other thing is frequency of updates. So you've got, you know, folks whose job it is in a large e-commerce site who are merchandisers. They're moving things in and out of categories. They're preparing collections for distribution. They're changing copy all the time. And imagine you had 100,000 pages, right? And there's like four or five of these merchandisers making changes, 100,000 pages, and maybe they're changing like the site once an hour. Are you going to have to rebuild all 100,000 pages every hour? And in fact, did anybody visit 90% of those pages in that last hour? You're not only creating slowdowns, you're actually creating excess cost. You're gonna have to pay for that build time in CPU one way or the other. It can be a huge way. So it can sap your team productivity. It can also create excess cost. So it's there's kind of two dimensions of the problem in updates and this number of pages. I think it's a property, the solution is a property of both your framework and your architecture. You clearly kind of have to throw out purely static techniques after a certain point. But there's a variety of techniques that have emerged that can bridge the divide. And one of those is ISG that you mentioned, incremental static generation, which is a property of Next. But there are other techniques. We've added one called parallel static, which I'll, I'll let Mark describe. But all of these techniques usually rely in some form on serverless functions to build pages in demand on response to traffic. I guess I'll start by saying we do a lot of work with Next.js and, and many of our customers do as well. Probably half the sites, modern sites at least, that are deployed on Layer 0 are, are Next.js. And Next.js has a really fantastic API that's like a gradient from fully static to fully dynamic. So if you're considering something in the React world, that's definitely one to look at. Sadly, some of those benefits that exist in Next.js haven't fully been ported over to the other big libraries like the Vue world or the Svelte world or the Angular world. They're probably coming because it's a pretty good design. But one of the things that we put in layer zero is the ability to do static rendering at deployment time for any framework. And the way that we do it is that we actually leverage our serverless compute power to crawl the site in parallel and load all of the statically cacheable pages into the edge. So it actually even like skips S3 and just goes right to the edge. So that first hit on any long tail page is, you know, on the order of tens of milliseconds. So that's something that's that's totally applicable for any framework, even a fully dynamic framework that just sends back cache control headers. Um, you could achieve all the same benefits speed-wise of uh, a Jamstack or a static application um, framework. And when you think about it, doing a rendering at build time versus doing it at runtime with traditional caching techniques, there's only really two differences there. 
One is the very first page hit somebody would have to wait for. But if you've got, you know, millions of users, well, that's statistically insignificant difference between caching and, and static pre-rendering. And then the other is, well, if you're doing everything at deployment time or build time, then you know if the build went out successfully, well, all the content's there, like nothing can fail then at runtime. And so if you could somehow remove that risk from the runtime by having, you know, a really reliable runtime backend, then that difference kind of vanishes as well. So that's one of the comforts of using, you know, the other half of layer zero, which is the serverless cloud in which your code runs. It's a much lower risk area to run your code than like maybe standing up your own Node.js cluster and trying to make it highly available and scalable. We leverage AWS Lambda underneath the hood, which basically as long as it scales as, as big as your pocketbook can handle. So there's really no chance you'll run out of resources and it's very highly stable and, and uh, highly available multi-region, et cetera. So we really specialize in blurring the line between you know fully static and fully dynamic. But when you think about it, what makes a site static? The ability to be cached. And how that content gets into the cache is far less important than that it's cacheable in the first place and it can be delivered from the edge. Because 99% of your requests are going to be delivered from a static file or piece of memory from a CDN's edge cache anyway. That last point that, that Mark gave, I just want to emphasize, it's what makes Jamstack Jamstack is that it, it came from the edge. And I don't know if you guys saw a Jamstack conference, it was a year ago or so, where they were, they had Matt from WordPress and Matt from Netlify had a debate, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, there's this moment in the debate and both Matt's are kind of right here. One Matt, you know, WordPress Matt is like, well, just stick a CDN in front of your WordPress site. Netlify Matt is, we've looked at it. Nobody caches their HTML. And they're both right. We actually did that same analysis. We've crawled the IR500, which is like the big retailers on, on the web. About 11% of them only are caching their HTML. And that's the first request. That's what makes your the users actually waiting for. And so if you can essentially cache with really good high cache hit rates, then you can get pretty close to Jamstack on a dynamic website. And so customers on our, our sites are basically caching their APIs and their data, their API data and their page data. Uh, so that raw HTML with better than 90% cache hit rate. But you need a lot of coordination to make that work so that it's very easy for the application developer to do. So that's one of the things we've done and invested in with, with the technology we call EdgeJS that makes it so as you're writing the application, you can control what the, the edge is going to do in very powerful ways. And we did mention ISG. I think it might be helpful to just back up and explain to folks what ISG is, which is, it's called incremental static generation, which is basically you deploy your site and maybe some of those pages are statically generated at build time. But after the deploy, when a request comes in, ISG will basically throw up a little skeleton placeholder while the user you know waits for it to load. And then behind the scenes, it's actually running the static build process, but just for that page. And then it saves that result serves it up to the user and anybody who comes after that will get it, you know, lickedly split already pre-built. And so it only builds the pages as the traffic comes in. And I think more important than just ISG itself is, and this was one of the points I made in the talk on CFE, which is that I think there's a whole spectrum of Jamstack-like techniques for solving this problem of how do you take a dynamic website and get Jamstack-like performance out of it. And ISG is just one of those. How much of your features as a platform, would you say is agnostic to frameworks? Would you say a lot of your logic that you bring and your features and benefits are agnostic to any framework you use? Or are some of the features necessarily tied to certain frameworks? 
That's a really topical question. One of the things that was really great about the way Mark and team built out our ISG support, which is a property of Next, is they tried to do it in a framework agnostic way. And just yesterday, we were speaking at Nuxt Nation, and we showed how you could take the same primitives built into how we implemented ISG for Next, and you could do it in Nuxt. Now, part of the problem is Nuxt doesn't have inside the framework the same kind of out-of-the-box integrations for it, but you can run the EdgeJS commands, write the app code yourself, and you can get something that's effectively like ISG on other frameworks. So it's a mix, but we always try to do it at least where it requires our integration to be as framework agnostic as possible. I know, Mark, if you have anything you want to add to that. The core product provides all the primitives that enable the most sophisticated features of Next.js to work, but we have a layer that we call the connector layer where you'll see we have a, a different package to support each framework. And really what it's doing is just converting the way that that framework thinks about the world into our primitives. So all the advanced features of Next.js, like ISG and ISR and SWR and every other three-letter acronym they could come up with, you could do it on Svelte or you could do it on uh, Nuxt. So there's actually very little other than the connector code itself that is uh, you know, tied to any given framework. It's probably 95% agnostic. Yeah, and if you go to our, our docs page, you'll see the first thing we show is what all the connectors are. And we've got Next, Nuxt, Angular. Uh, we've also got a lot of uh, e-commerce frameworks, so like Vue Storefront and React Storefront, um, ones that are maybe not as well known, but really important at the high end of e-commerce. So SAP's Commerce Cloud has a headless framework called SAP Spartacus. It's a form of Angular that's open source. And it'll only run really on Commerce Cloud, but you can run it headlessly on layer zero using Commerce Cloud as a backend. And we have connectors for that as well. Yeah, when I tried it out, I just used the regular Create React app template. I didn't use Next at all because I usually like to, whenever I'm trying something out, I usually want to try like the simplest thing that's available and then kind of try out more complicated versions as I go. And it worked fine using just regular old Create React app. It's interesting that you say almost half of the sites are using Next. And this is just a, a trend that I think anyone paying attention to, to web dev will see that Next is like running away with the, with the game right now. And for, for good reason. And now other frameworks are trying to essentially copy the features that they have. So it's it's cool that you guys are trying to abstract out those benefits you get from Next and try and bring them to your other sites or frameworks. And I'd like to go back to the, the Edge.js stuff. On your website, you talk about, you say it's the world's first JS-based CDN. When I hear that, I think you have the JS at the edge, meaning you can write your logic at the edge. And so I think a lot of people would hear something like this and they would think of something like Cloudflare with Cloudflare service workers and how you can write JavaScript that is going to execute all around the edge. So is that a similar idea or is, is that something else that's going on here? I would say it's a similar interface or API in both cases, the developers writing JavaScript, uh, whether you're using Cloudflare workers or, or layer zero. What makes them different is that a certain portion of the Edge.js with layer zero compiles down to something that is far more, an order of magnitude more performant than what you can do with Cloudflare workers, or even something like Wasm and Fastly's uh, you know, JavaScript uh, cloud compute solution. Layer zero is, is not only you know, an app ops platform or a Jamstack platform, but it's also a CDN. We have quite a lot of experience with low level, high compute CDN technologies 
namely varnish and VCL. For the uninitiated, Varnish is one of a very few pieces of software that run CDNs. I think Fastly uses Varnish, others do as well. And it has a configuration language that basically compiles down to machine code and it's just super, super performance. So you could do something like trying to match a thousand routes in potentially under a millisecond with VCL. A lot of the optimization that Layer Zero provides is taking that EdgeJS and compiling it down to VCL, which ultimately compiles the machine code and runs natively in Varnish. You can actually be incredibly lazy and unoptimized as a developer and have a a huge router that defines all of this edge logic where you do different things for different requests. In some cases, you may remove parts of the URL to normalize the cache key in one route. In another route, you might be cleaning up cookies or response headers or doing redirects or even doing serverless transforms of of the response to add and remove body content. That router can pile up thousands and thousands of routes and you never even really notice any slowdown, even for large, super large, complicated sites, because it's all being compiled down to VCL. It's like free performance, basically. And if you ever tried to do even 100 routes to match the request before the cache in a Cloudflare worker, you're adding some very noticeable latency to the site. Uh, It might be 50 milliseconds, it might be 150 milliseconds, it might be a quarter of a second or more. And then at that point, what's the point in having a cache if you're adding that much latency in front of it? So with with layer zero, you can basically be as complicated as you want, and you're only really adding one to two or three milliseconds of latency by running all that logic before the cache. So I think we've really got the best of both worlds in that there's a JavaScript API where you configure your CDN and it follows all the normal development practices. It's checked in, it's branched, it's merged, it's reviewed. You can spin up as many staging environments as you want. When you run the site locally in development, it's running the CDN locally in front of your app. So it's always testing the same consistent critical path. You know, so you've got a great API, it's very developer friendly, but in the end it's compiled down to something that works at internet scale and doesn't add any latency to your application. You know, it preserves the, the value of the CDN, which is improving the speed and reliability of your application. You wouldn't want to start adding more JavaScript code in front of the cache and then basically you just have a highly distributed set of lambdas. <laughs> you don't really have a CDN anymore. You know, I'm hopeful that other developers would agree we have really the best of both worlds there. A very fluent API, but also incredible performance. I want to emphasize something there, and it gets to back to the question about like how we're different from other Jamstack platforms. It's hard to appreciate just the problem we're trying to solve if you're used to sites that are like under a thousand pages. But because we're working at the high end of the market where these are really complex sites with really large sitemaps, they were built before the Jamstack. They may be 5, 10, 15, 20 years old, and they've got very, very large, complex sets of routing that needs to take place, and it has to be evaluated very, very fast. Otherwise, you're defeating the purpose of the cache, as Mark said. And very often, you know, part of that problem is the SEO and the link paradigm, like the URL paradigm doesn't match, say, the default you might get out of Next, right? When you start with Next out of the box, it gives you kind of a URL paradigm for how you map URLs to pages, but that may not map to how you historically have done it. And migrating your URL pattern is actually something not to be taken lightly. It SEO is hugely important. And if you reset that, you could jeopardize a ton of revenue. So those are the types of problems, you know, by being at this type of area of the market, it's kind of forcing us to solve these in ways that for other smaller sites, you don't typically have to encounter or solve. I've just been looking at the documentation about some of the deploy targets. And I've noticed that the next one is really interesting. We've obviously been speaking a lot about Next, but you do a lot of your own modules inside of Next. So you replace the routing by the looks of it as well? We don't replace it really. What we do is we take 
the routing that Next.js has by convention, and we move those rules out to the edge so that they can actually execute uh, potentially even pre-cache, and it just speeds up the whole application. So by having the edge understand the framework behind it, it can do things very intelligent. Like, so for example, let's say there's the ability to rewrites and redirects in Next.js through their own APIs. We don't ask you to rewrite those for layer zero. We just understand Next.js and we move those redirects pre-cache all the way to the edge so that they happen you know, in a, in a fraction of a second rather than having to get all the way to Node.js or some serverless layer and that adding a lot of latency. So you're, in essence, taking that child process and doing it on the platform, the parent, and then passing it down to the child of Next. We also basically are using it to do a lot of intelligence and understanding of the application. So, you know, if you look in a regular CDN and it shows you data on cache hit rate, it's going to be in terms of just raw URLs. But that's not how you as the developer think of your site. You think of it in terms of your routes. This is my category page. This is my product page. This is my homepage. Because we are framework aware, we can then display information about like memory usage or runtime of your serverless code in the same way you think of it. Instead of when you add a new route, like you add a new type of page, like a new type of category page, we automatically recognize it. You don't have to do it anything special or any additional tacking. It just happens automatically as part of your normal development workflow, which is really important again, when you're working on a large site. And then we can basically send you statistics all in terms of the way you think about your application, which is at the framework level, not at the layers below. Talking about them statistics, what is RUM? Ah, RUM stands for Real User Monitoring. And really, it's a way to measure the speed of your website by aggregating and averaging the statistics of every single user who visited your site. How fast is this site for everyone? And then just average each of those measurements together. It's how your users are actually experiencing your site. In contrast, you use something like Lighthouse, and it tries to create a simulation on your computer. It's kind of what they call a lab measurement. And it says, for this particular lab situation, here's how fast your site is. And the challenge is, your users may not match the lab scenario that was set up. And so Lighthouse can kind of not align with raw measurements. And where this really matters is Core Web Vitals, which is Google's speed ranking metrics. What's new here is we all know that speed meant better conversion rates. Now speed means more traffic, better ranking on, on search engines. Because search engines are zero sum game, like if you move up, somebody else moves down and vice versa, you're actually now stealing traffic from your competitors. So speed now means growth as well. The problem is that Lighthouse is not how Google does this ranking. They do it through ROM, real user monitoring. And so you really need to know how fast your site really is. Just a side note, I heard the best way to get a Lighthouse score is by doing it on web.dev instead of doing it on your computer because your computer actually affects the score, supposedly. It does. I don't know if you get a better score, but it can vary by your computer. I typically go to PageSpeed Insights. I like this big problem you'll have actually in development teams is somebody says, I got a 99 and somebody else is like, oh, I got an 80 and you have no real consistent measurement. You need to make sure whatever machine is doing it is doing it in the same consistent way. This really matters actually if you're trying to use like Lighthouse CI and you're trying to build it as part of your CI CD process. And so the way we usually settle this is if you're not gonna share that result with anyone else and you're just trying to say, am I making my one optimization better or worse? Lighthouse is fine for that. But when you're trying to report results to the team at large or some larger audience, I would just go to something like 
PageSpeed Insights and run Lighthouse just to see what your Lighthouse score is. Again, I don't think you should really pay attention to your Lighthouse score. I think you should look at your field data and your core web vitals because that's what your users are actually experiencing. But if you have to compare Lighthouse scores, you need to make be aware of that. And actually, Lighthouse itself isn't consistent. We have tracked you know, folks' Lighthouse scores day after day, and there is even variation there. And Lighthouse, or rather PageSpeed Insights, will actually route you to a different data center depending on your location. They don't tell you about this. It's really hard to get a very fixed baseline for your performance, but in the end, that's the beauty of ROM. It's how your users are actually experiencing the site. Now, the challenge though with Google's Core Web Vitals is they only tell you like 28 days later how your performance is. And that makes it really hard to test and optimize your speed. So that's one of the things we built into layer zero is ROM that's real time. We'll tell you within a matter of minutes and it integrates with our AB testing. So you can try a change, you can roll it out and the next day you can say, well, did this improve my core of vitals or not? And it automatically knows which version did better than the other. Yeah, this is something that we talked about with Sebastian from DocuSource is the, the problems with Lighthouse. And so that he was saying is that also with Lighthouse, you're you're measuring the initial page. You're not really measuring like the interactions you get when you're switching between pages for like a single page application. Whereas what you're talking about is you're actually measuring the entire experience someone gets while they're navigating through a site. It's kind of the worst of bo- both worlds, actually, when it comes in some ways to Core of Vitals. It doesn't measure the single page app page transitions on something like one of the metrics is largest contentful pane. So if you go like a category page going back and forth between products in a single page app can be lightning fast, but Core Web Vitals won't reward you for that. On the other hand, there's another metric called cumulative layout shift, which until recently would actually track for the entire lifetime of the page. So you'd see single page app applications have really terrible cumulative layout shifts. Those pages stay open very long as far as Core Web Vitals is concerned. And they recently fixed that, but we, we'd been hounding on the team for a while at Google. And what they did is they basically added a little averaging window and they basically cap it at five seconds and then they do another window and see what your cumulative layout shift score is. But yeah, a lot of the scores, and this is actually a big problem with a lot of performance metrics, they don't measure the time after first load. If you look at like Wolfgang Digital had some data, average e-commerce page or session is about five to six pages, but tools like Lighthouse only track the first one. But if you actually optimize all those subsequent page loads, you might be able to actually speed up the entire browsing session by a lot more. And that's what single page apps do. We've timed them to 300 milliseconds. That's literally the blink of an eye, about 300 to 400 milliseconds. They feel more like a native app than a website, but Core of Vitals doesn't yet recognize that. And the Chrome team knows this, they're working on it, but for now, just be aware that it, there's a little extra challenge there when you're doing a single page app. We did a really great podcast episode with two developers, Annie and Katie from the Chrome team, where they took us through the importance of Core Web Vitals and what it means and how it affects, to the extent that they can say, Google's search ranking and just the evolution of their understanding and recognition of single page apps and the amortization of the initial load across you know multiple navigations is fascinating to hear. The stakes are so high for Google there. Any decision they make has ripple effects throughout web development and throughout the internet world. Definitely recommend folks checking that one out, our podcast there on JavaScript Jam with the Chrome team. 
PageSpeed Insights is where a lot of people go to evaluate the performance of their website. I really feel the user experience of it is wrong because the thing at the top is the Lighthouse score. And that score is entirely arbitrary, but everyone just gets focused on it. I think folks should just ignore that score at the top. The weighting is arbitrary. Like how much does TTI contribute to that score is entirely meaningless. It may not correlate to your business. And again, these are simulations. Time to interactive if you look at the way it's measured, it's got a bunch of heuristics in it. So one example is it looks for what it calls network quiet state, and it looks for when all your get requests end. So if you switch your app from say rest, get to say GraphQL where everything's post, network quiet's gonna happen earlier, but you haven't really necessarily made the site faster, but yet TTI might actually reward that. So the metrics tend to be in Lighthouse or again, heuristics, but you should not think that reflects how fast your site really is. I think Lighthouse scores are one of them things. Has your marketing team got hold of putting their tools on the website yet? If the answer is no, then ignore them. Because as soon as they put their tools on, never look at them again because they'll just depress you. Because you think, oh, I got 99 or whatever. And then your marketing team comes along and goes, we're going to install these 20 scripts. And you're like, why? And they're like, because conversion. You go, okay, you install the 20 scripts. And then you look at your Lighthouse score and it's now 20 because all these external dependencies you can't do anything about. Definitely true. <laughs> Definitely true. I mean, the worst way to record a Lighthouse score, the easiest way is to add more JavaScript. And even if your marketing folks say, well, I'm just adding one library. If that one library is a tag manager, oh boy, <laughs> here comes the flood of JavaScript. So a lot of truth there. That's why core web vitals are so much better because it's actually tracking the use. It's not tracking the, oh, how fast does the page load? It's tracking how does it load for the users over time? And I find it really interesting. And my very final question is, I see a lot of parallels to Vercel. Which one do you think hosts the Next.js website better? Well, Ishan, do you want to tackle that one first? <laughs> I think it depends on the site and what techniques you want to use. I think if you're a static website, then both solutions are going to host your, your site just fine. If you want to do something like ISG, we both support it out of the box. If you're a high stakes website at scale, there are features on top of Next that we add that make the site more performant. We have a large number of points of presence on our edge. Thanks to a new partnership, we now own our infrastructure. We can do a lot of deep integration. We can do a lot of that routing that Mark talked about that happens at the edge. We can do split testing and A-B testing that's integrated with our ROM. And we've got a bunch of techniques beyond simply ISG, like parallel static rendering, which in some cases might be simpler to reason about. So if you've got a lot of pages in your site or a lot of frequent updates happening on your site, all I can say is that's where we've built our solution. But I do want to say we have a lot of respect and there's a lot of innovation that I think the whole community should be thankful for from both the teams at the other Jamstack platforms. So our hats are off to them. They're really pushing a lot of the boundaries on developer experience. There are things that they do that we don't. I'll give you an example. Right now, we do not actually execute static builds. We were not built for static websites. So right now, if you want to do a purely static website, the way the integration happens is you're actually running it through GitHub Actions on your own account. Now, we might revisit that down the line, but that's because, again, at the segment of the market we play, folks already had their own CI/CD, and they weren't really trying to do a static website. It's less about which is better. It's really about identifying what type of 
company you are or what type of use case you are? And are we the best fit for that? I'll make an analogy to e-commerce. You've got a whole set of e-commerce solutions. You've got the WooCommerce and Shopify at one end of the market. And then you've got kind of Magento kind of at the middle. And then you've got like SAP and Demandware at another segment of the market, the higher end or WebSphere. Each of those caters to a different set of personas and a different set of problems that they try to solve. In some cases, those things are at odds, simplicity versus control. And so we're really designed at that mid to high end of the market. You've got more than 10,000 pages. You're doing more than 5 million or more in, in merchandise revenue a year. Then yeah, we're probably a better fit for that. If you're a smaller site, you know our DX may not be as what you're looking for if you're hosting your small static blog. We can totally handle it and the traffic, but that's not what we've built the product for at the moment. I think that's really interesting to say because every time, obviously, we speak to people from these companies, uh, I always imagine, uh, you know, Netlify is the uh, jack of all trades, you know, does does everything, can do everything to a good enough standard. And then Vercel is very good at your standard Next.js. Um, and it very much seems like Layer Zero is like this high performance version for that very specific use cases. So it's really interesting to see these things because... I think it's such a hard decision for your everyday dev to pick one of these platforms, especially if you're going in from nothing, as in you've just built your first Next.js website. Which one do you pick? Does it really even matter anymore? Is another really good question. Probably for another day, though. One other thing I would emphasize is suppose you're on another platform like Angular, sorry, another framework like Angular or Nuxt. You can't get ISG really on those platforms. That's something else that we've tried to take innovations from all the different frameworks, put them together, and then re-implement them in a way that's framework agnostic. So any framework can kind of be able to be scalable and still get the Jamstack benefits. I really appreciate that answer you gave about respecting Vercel for the innovation that they've given, because that's very in line with the, the spirit of this show is not tearing down competitors who are doing similar things to us, because we're all learning from each other. We're all kind of seeing what other people are doing in this space and helps us all grow and make you know, better technology and have better experience for our users. So I think that's really awesome. And it sounds like you all have done a good job of really honing your own value prop and what you bring to the table. And that's independent from what anyone else is doing. So it's like, you know, this is our thing. This is what we're owning. The last thing I'd be curious to get just before you guys give like your socials and how to contact you is like, how would you tell someone to get started with layer zero? Like what's the best way to kind of get a foot in? One way is you can just take your app, install the layer zero CLI, you know, NPM install layer zero, and then run layer zero init and layer zero deploy. You can go to our documentation, pick your framework, there'll be instructions there. But really the short answer is go to our docs page. There's one click buttons, pick the framework you're used to, click on that deploy button with one click and sign in with your GitHub account. And if you do, it'll spin up a sample app in your framework of choice that you can just play with immediately. And that's really the best way to get started. And then if you run into any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to myself, Mark, or our support team. We also have forums uh, where you can ask a lot of questions as well. But that's the best way. Just go to docs.layer0.co and then pick your framework and click on the deploy button and sign up with GitHub. And in one click, you'll get a project you can play with. And then what are your guys' socials and how can we get in touch with either of you two? My Twitter is at MakaruDev. Some people may know me from the, the Makaru application. That was actually my baby. Uh, it's a, an application for creating um, fake data for like software testing and demos. So my main Twitter profile is, is under that, but I, you know, I do everything on that one. You can reach me at I-A-N-A-N-D, my first initial and then my last name on Twitter. 
You can also contact uh, Layer Zero. Our Twitter handle is Layer Zero Deploy. Or if you go to our website, you can file a support ticket and get a hold of us that way as well. I can't wait to uh, see how the company keeps on growing. Well, thank you both for being here. Really appreciate it. Hope people will check out Layer Zero and also your own podcast, JavaScript Jam. So we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. There's breaking news. Gatsby's just released their fourth version with SSG, SSR, and DSG. Who knows what all these mean? I'm going to have to read up on that. But I was going to mention that they started adding serverless functions. Everybody in the ecosystem eventually has to add some form of serverless if they want to grow beyond static. DSG, I think, stands for deferred server something? Deferred static generation, maybe? This is a deferred static generation. There you go. So I'll have to add that to my next talk. I, I'm looking forward to that. I'll have to drill into it. Everybody's coming up with a new acronym for server-side rendering with a cache in front of it. <laughs> <laughs>